And welcome to Peer Pressure. Today we talk to Mike Hudson of the Pagans. And he talks about things like Devo hitting the big time and the correlation between success and death. Stay tuned. Thanks to Lita Martinez for editing the podcast and to Liz Berg for the other podcast-related duties that she handles so fabulously. We are WFMU. Mike Hudson, are you there? Hi, Diane. Hi! Ah, so, long time no see. Yes, indeed. Well, it hasn't been that long. My guest, my, my esteemed guest today for the peer pressure segment of the program is Mike Hudson. And, uh, Hi, we, everybody. If you could just establish uh, a little bit of, this is kind of like the beginning part of To Tell the Truth, but, <laughs> but, but you can do it and give like the little, the little bio. That way you can sort of uh, focus on what you want to focus on. You know, I was in the Pagans uh, a million years ago, was with other bands after that. At the same time, ran a career in the newspaper business and most recently been writing books. And you have a new book out, right? Pretty new. It came out in uh, November. It's a novel. It's called Never Trust the World. It's kind of a noir, violent, sexual underground novel nice and people should buy it yes people should buy it and this is not your first book no i have five now um (laughs) (laughs) i love that fact i don't know anybody who's written five books except for you it's great it just it was a logical thing to come out of the newspaper writing you know and then uh people wanted wanted me to write about music so i did a a memoir diary of a punk talks about the pagans and talks about those days and uh and and for you and you know you did when you introduced yourself you said oh the pagans a million years ago is it weird for you to keep on talking about the pagans to people it's not weird it just seems like a really long time ago i mean it was a really long time ago it was 35 years ago yeah uh, yeah but it was a defining uh thing in me growing up and it was um i think you could talk to a lot of people who would say that that late 70s early 80s manifestation of rock and roll was like the last natural organic thing that happened in rock and roll i think that's why it still gets the attention it does and do you find though that that your memory or that you sort of retell the same the same uh, facts and and stories about that era we were on tour uh cheetah chrome myself bob pfeiffer from human switchboard and david thomas from perubu last year around this time and yeah pretty much we told the same stories every place we went uh, <laughs> people asked the same questions the, the funny thing about it was that wherever we were like new york or seattle san francisco people knew stuff about cleveland that was really surprising to us like about local television personalities or uh, uh really obscure bands from the 60s or whatever it was and i think that was the surprising part to us those people were big to us but we had no idea that anyone outside of cleveland really was even cognizant of them a lot of that may have been after the fact because cleveland ended up being such an important um the focus for music at that time and on a historical level Level, you know, you go back and you do your homework, kind of. Yeah, there's been a lot written about it subsequently, for sure, because there wasn't, at the time, hardly anything written about it. That was one of the reasons I did Diary of a Punk. Well, I was going to ask you, the, uh, the was it was it to sort of set a story straight or to actually to, to get something out that you felt hadn't been out there? It, it, it was kind of, I was reading things like that Clinton Highlines, uh, it's to the Voidoids, and, and that was probably had more about Cleveland in it than anything that had appeared before that mm-hmm. and there was just he's a younger guy he's from great britain he talked to a very limited number of people to me having been there it conveyed pretty totally the wrong impression about what happened there i had no idea that he was from the uk because i know the book and at the time i thought it was timely and had no idea I guess you see that in in music scenes now that a music scene past is now history and somebody writes about it. It's not always the person who's qualified to do so. Well, you know, and he had a he had a definite agenda where he favored oh, the talking heads. Uh, Cheetah Chrome always calls that book "Revenge of the Nerds." <laughs> and, you know, 
they're putting down Johnny Fonders. They're putting down some some really important, great people. And uh, so, not, you know, we didn't like it. Was that sort of you decided to take it to take the opportunity to write a diary of a punk? Then I had gotten fired from a newspaper job, and I was drinking myself to death. Some people suggested that I should write about it just to have you not drink I, yourself to death. Have me not drink myself to death. Yeah, <laughs> so I started typing it. We put it up first as a website. It got a, a great deal of attention, you know, more than I thought it would. So then it seemed logical to make it into a book. So that is, um, and I'm looking at your Amazon page right now, which is glorious. And, and uh, so Diary of a Punk, that came out in 2008, is that right? Yeah. Your new one is Never Trust the World. Yeah. And so let me just jump to that one. So this is a novel. It's a novel, and there's a few short stories tacked on at the end to make it a little longer. It's uh, pretty much everything I wrote, fiction-wise, since I wrote the last one, which was in 2009. And that would be Niagara Falls Confidential? No, the the one before that was Jetson. Oh, okay. And plus, because of the tour, I I met a lot of great and important people on the tour, like Luke Sand. They were uh, able to give me blurbs, and so I didn't want to waste those blurbs and figured I had to get a new book out in order to uh, use my new literary contacts. Well, blurbs are certainly valuable in the world. Mm-hmm. We are, mm-hmm. we are mm-hmm. in a world of blurbs. You could tweet all those blurbs. I had always felt that Luke San, who wrote Low Life, of course, about New York City around the turn of the 20th century, um, I always thought that he was the greatest writer of my generation. And uh, to uh, meet him and... Um, have him plug my book was quite an honor. I mean, you have a certain of that sort of hard-boiled, underbelly style as well. It's funny because we talked and uh, we talked about that. Uh, he's coming at it from a toy. He's Belgian. He's a college professor. And uh, whereas, you know, I'm kind of like a blue-collar high school dropout. Okay. So we're coming at it from different places. But yeah, we're both attracted to the same things. And uh, we had some good talks. He uh, moderated the two shows, two readings we did in uh, uh, Manhattan and uh, Brooklyn last year. And when you're writing, are you sort of, because I know that you you said there's, um, there's stories at the end of this book. Are you in like a sort of a discipline mode when you're writing? Yeah, I do. I, um, it doesn't take me very long to write, but I, I'll tend to like sleep all day and then stay up all night because the phone doesn't ring and, uh, Ah. you know, get up about 11 o'clock at night, go till 8 or 9 in the morning and... And when I get in a, you know, a groove like that, then it, it, it only, you know, I think that book took me like four weeks to write. Wow. At least the first draft of it, you know, uh, mm-hmm. substantially complete, as they say, in the construction industry. Oh, okay. <laughs> Mr. Accomplishment, I say, over here. <laughs> That's, yeah. Sometimes you have to do it. I knew, um, I wrote a book called Mob Boss. The newspaper that I run in Niagara Falls, New York, was going out of business, and we needed money, and I knew that book would make money, and uh, so, again, I sat down. I, I turned that, I did that in two and a half weeks. It sold 10,000 copies right away, and uh, the newspaper was saved. Saved! <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, much more creative than having a garage sale. It's, it's sort of like having a garage sale, actually. Mm-hmm. And so then, Mob Boss, I'm going to guess that these were stories that you had either written... Well, what, can you can you sort of tell it's me... A, it's a nonfiction book. There was a guy, Stefano Magadino. He died in 74, and he was uh, a mafia kingpin. He was uh, one of the seven original members of what they called the commission with, like, Lucky Luciano and mm-hmm. uh, Joe Bonanno and Al Capone. There were the five families of New York, and then there was Buffalo and uh, Chicago. And of those seven guys, he was the only one who hadn't had a uh, biography written about him. I knew a lot of people who knew him from my work as a newspaper man up there. So I I wrote a biography of him. So you didn't actually take newspaper articles and turn them into a book. It was just a book on its own. I had written quite a bit about him in the newspaper over the years. And yes, some of that I used in the book. Uh, He was was a weird guy because he never got, he was arrested only once in his life. He couldn't read or write. He never talked to a newspaper man. 
And so there's very little compared to those other guys, Luciano and those guys. There was very little documentary kind of uh, stuff to go to about him. It had to be more you're talking to people who knew him or who worked for him or uh, whose families were somehow involved with him. It was a funny thing, like the mafia guys in Buffalo, they took it as kind of a diss that there was no book about him. <laughs> so, it, so when I started writing it, they were very eager to contribute, you know. Wow. Wow, that's a really interesting thing. <laughs> it's like you're not made or you're not, you don't rank in some way of notoriety unless they've written a book about you. That was it. They, they thought he was being disrespected, you know, and oh. uh, so they would, you, we'd sit down and have a drink or have a cup of coffee or whatever, and uh, they would tell these stories, and then it was just a matter of going to the uh, newspaper archives, because obviously the dates get fuzzy when old people start talking about what happened 40 years ago, finding stories that jived with the anecdotes that these people had told me and um, putting, a, you know, putting a timeline on it. That was probably very difficult. And I'm sure it was entertaining. It's the biggest book. It, it, it sold the most of all my books. There's guys that like follow the mob, um, like, you know, the Civil War reenactors and stuff like that, you oh. know, and just anything about the Civil War they're crazy for. There's people that follow the mob like that. Nice. And uh, we'll buy any anything that has to do with the mob. It sold well initially, and then uh, it, it's continued uh, selling well over the years. The mob's been very, very good to me, Diane. Yeah, yeah. Well, you just, you know, you just got to watch your step and make sure that, that you're still very, very good to them. <laughs> well, that's why I cut the book off at 1974 when Stefano died because I didn't want to uh, embarrass anyone. Um, we have a, a question. It just says, ask Mike about the couch in Minneapolis. About what in Minneapolis? The couch. A couch in Minneapolis. <laughs> All right. I feel, I feel like Johnny Carson. Remember when he put on the um, oh, the great what did he say? The turban and would hold the envelopes. Next yeah, to what did he call um, that? I wasn't sure. I can't give you any is more. That from somebody I know. I don't know. Do you have a hint? <laughs> um, <laughs> I I don't necessarily think so. It's from a regular listener here. We used to, we used to play Minneapolis a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, we were on Treehouse Records, which was based there. Um, the mid late 80s and uh, so our tours always started in Minneapolis and uh, we were up there quite a bit. Any uh, particular stories from Minneapolis that you can think of? One time Tim Alley, our bass player, knocked uh, Evan Dando for Minneapolis unconscious. <laughs> We've gone to see them and they asked us to play like uh, a couple of songs at their show so we did and uh, we were all sitting at a, at a booth and Tim got up and went to get drinks for everybody. And um, when he returned, Evan Dando was sitting in uh, his spot in the booth. And Tim was standing there with like these two handfuls of drinks. Evan was paying no attention to him. So Tim put the drinks down and grabbed him by the shoulders and getting the bums rush out of the booth. And there was like a pillar there. Oh, and oh. he ran his head into the pillar, and um, Evan <laughs> lost consciousness briefly, and, um, and Tim sat down, and we had a drink. Nice. <laughs> Very good. I'd like to break here. You are here as my guest DJ, and uh, we'll get back to, and we'll get some clarification on the couch. Um, yeah, yeah, clarification on that couch. Yes. And uh, the first song, uh, can you introduce? This is not now no way. We, we recorded it on Halloween in 1978. David Thomas produced it. All right, then. So my guest is Mike Hudson from The Pagans. Probably have a, at least a dozen records under your belt. And uh, this is The Pagans now. Please stay tuned. <laughs>
Doke. So we are back with Mike Hudson. Are you there, sir? Hey, Diane. Hello. So uh, nice. Having little... coffee. You're having coffee. I know. You're yeah. you're on the West Coast now, right? Yeah, I came out here like uh, end of December, end of uh, November. And you stayed, and you're so so. I want to thank you just for getting on the phone at 10 a.m., especially since you talked about <laughs> your writing habits and staying up all night writing. Yeah. I, still, I still kind of stay on East Coast time, so but, you know I still have business back there. So uh, oh, yeah, it's it's the morning here. You're such a Renaissance man. <laughs> well, I bet that coffee's tasting pretty good. But thanks for it, it, it is good. Yeah, it is good. awesome. I so, always hated LA, you know. My brother died out there and uh, out here, and um, since then I was only out here one time before last year for my nephew's bar mitzvah. Last year we were out here for two weeks. We played, uh, we did the readings here, right, and um, on the tour. And I started liking it. I came back in July. I, I had some stuff with Bob Pfeiffer from Human Switchboard. Then there's a band from, from Detroit called The Dogs, a punk rock band, and they did a cover of Her Name Was Jane, which is an old pagan song. And um, they asked me to come out and be in a video and uh, play it with them at the Redwood downtown. My co-star in the video, Avita Corby, she, uh, she's beautiful, and I fell in love with her. And um, I had to come back out here for good. Well, that's some pretty good news. It, it was, it was, you know, it was unexpected. It was, uh, well, you, you think your life's going one way, and then all of a sudden it goes another way. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't plan things like that, can you? Mm-mm. So let's rewind the clock. The pagans have their own jet. What would the symbol on the tail of the jet be? <laughs> it would just be that stenciled pagans, like from the front cover of the shingles. But okay. you know, if if we had any kind of success like that, then instead of two dead members, we would have five dead members. You know what I mean? It was uh, it was pretty dicey as it was, and and a lot of times now I'm thankful for uh, that nobody paid any attention to us when we were actually around. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, you do. Yeah, you you get those adoring fans that'll give you anything, and the the mountain of cocaine doesn't end, and and you're. You know what? I hadn't done cocaine in 25 years. I'm gonna tell you. When I was in Portland, Oregon this last year on a tour. A couple of shows on a tour, like uh, New York City and Portland. We, pl- we played music, and I was drinking then, and um, I was just feeling really good. And we we're in this little club, and some guy walks up, and he's got a quarter of an ounce of coke, and he goes, "Do you want to go do some coke?" And I was, I hadn't done it in 25 years, and just like it was like an automatic response. I just said, "Yeah." You know, the, ne- the next day I'm going, "What did you do? What, what is wrong with you?" You know, <laughs> but, but it was just being there. You know. Yeah, yeah. 25 years later. Yeah, exactly. And we all have automatic responses to certain things. 
You know, yeah. whether, whether it's like a response that's automatic from a member of our family, you know what they're going to say, you know, yeah. whatever, or somebody offers you something to indulge in. We, we used to get paid in cocaine. Oh! <laughs> really? You know, we, we would come, we would come uh, you know, uh, in the dressing room, uh, break the wall-length mirror to have something to do it off of, and uh, we used to get paid like that, you know? Wow. Wow. So you just said that as an example, like we'd break the mirror just to do cocaine off of. How destructive would you say that you were as a band? I mean, obviously, I never saw the Pagans play. Um, what were your shows like? In the 70s, it could, it could uh, all of us were, were heavy drinkers. All of us were using a lot of drugs, um, and that includes our manager. So it was pretty out of control all the time. We would fight a lot among ourselves. Um, like on stage? And some shows would just be amazingly good. Everything would go okay. And other shows would just be disasters and wind up uh, fist fight on stage. And uh, <laughs> That's the legendary stuff, though. That's the legendary stuff. That's the legendary stuff. But I can tell you that, like, when you're driving back to Cleveland from Chicago with three broken ribs, oh. you know, it doesn't feel too legendary because you can't hardly get your arm up high enough to hold the steering wheel. Oh. Yeah, well, you know, you got to pay your dues. Yeah. If you're, you're going to play that way, that's what you got to, you know, that's what you got to do. Oh. But that that leads me then back. There was some uh, there was some clarification on the the uh, the couch question. So the person said somebody threw a couch off a balcony. Oh, that was in Cleveland. That wasn't in Minneapolis. We played this show. It was that was one of the shows that we got paid in cocaine for. <laughs> It was Disastodrome. Get- um, it was like the night before New Year's Eve in 1978. We rented this big auditorium, the WHK Auditorium in Cleveland, and there was like 10 bands on the bill, and uh, we were headlining, and it just, everything got out of control. And we got out of control, and the audience got out of control, and nice. it was this old palace-type theater, and um, there was this Art Deco couch up in the balcony, and I see that coming down towards the stage and people were just winging bottles at us and uh, the stage got so slippery that I couldn't really move around without falling down wow. and you would fall down and there was like a bed of broken glass from the bottles Ooh. on the stage I'm covered you know I got blood running down my arms and my chest and my head and um, that was an abbreviated set as well it was appreciated set as well. We went out like, we were supposed to go out at midnight. I think we went out at like three in the morning and uh, it was dangerous. You know, it was actually dangerous. How much of that of that experience was really um, expected at that time? Or were there a lot of gigs that you would go to that were just sort of mellow shows? It, you know, like us, I, I can only speak for us and a little bit for the Dead Boys because they were were and you know she is still a great friend of mine uh jimmy for us we were like prior to being in the bands we were like uh stealing cars and um we were like blue collar kids lower middle class uh none of us finished high school and music was kind of a way to get away from that by the same token it was uh we brought a lot of that with us you know what i mean the vandalism and uh and all that so i don't know that it was expected or i mean we were just being us but so do you see that your trajectory would have been really that different had you not been playing music oh i think we have all been you know wound up doing jail time and uh, you maybe ended up working in a factory uh what we were supposed to do no the music for sure took us out of that you know took us into a different world well thank goodness for that because you're <laughs> well really it's like you're the world without having an amazing lyricist like you it's like oh my god come on you know i'm a lucky guy yeah i've always been a lucky guy uh, apparently when the couch was thrown it missed you even though you were bleeding <laughs> and, uh, wow. the couch missed us uh we, we got out of there okay you know, we broke up in 79 the first time, and um, we thought that was it. You know, we thought that, we thought that part of our lives was over then, and uh, but it wasn't, you know, because you never know what's going to happen next. Yeah, exactly. So what was, what's your, what you can recall, what's your worst um, onstage injury? The worst onstage injury actually happened to Tim, and it wasn't onstage 
Tim Atley, our bass player. It wasn't actually on stage, but it was in the dressing room, and we were playing in Hoboken, New Jersey at Maxwell's. Again, there was much drugs and alcohol involved, and he took a head or he fell. There was a drum stand, or like a, a cymbal stand, that was retracted, so it was like something like three feet off the ground. And he fell on that. He like sat down hard on that not knowing where he was sitting down. And it went right up his rectum. No. Because I know the FCC is listening. And, um, kidding? It perforated some stuff inside him. Oh. He was bleeding. He, had, he was stuffing toilet paper up there. Uh, oh, my like God. A woman a... would use a tampon. Was this... We went on. We played the show. It went really well. And then after the show, we went back to the hotel. We had stolen, because we had gotten to the club early, we filled all our bags with, like, bottles of vodka because they stupidly let us into the club when no one was there. So we, we, we probably had a case of vodka with us. Tim was just pounded, pounded because he was in such pain and uh, bleeding so badly. And But we had to play Boston the next afternoon in order to get the plane tickets back home to Cleveland. So fortunately, it was an early show, an all-ages show, and we played that. And the Lemonheads again—that was the first. That was the <laughs> Lemonheads' first gig. Oh no! They opened. They opened for us at, at a club in Cambridge there, and we got home. And Tim, uh, an ambulance met us at the airport. Tim went right into intensive care, and you know, truthfully, we didn't know if he was going to make it or not. Oh, I mean, that's a serious injury. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, completely speechless. You know. Yeah, it's all fun and games until somebody gets a uh, mm-hmm. a, a, a symbol stand shoved up their rectum. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's rock and roll. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So, um, you played after the cramps. You played Patty Smith. Patty Smith was great. You know, we played with her a couple of times. The success that she's had uh, subsequently, and um, especially with the book, and winning the National Book Award, and uh, we played with her one time. She had a violin, and she left it in her car. Someone stole it out of her car. So she comes to the gig, and, like, we're opening, and before we go on, she gets up on stage and gives this impassioned plea to, like, return her violin, and she's crying and shit. He kind of put a damper on the thing, you know, and um, so we got we got up and we made fun of her, and I always felt bad about that. Oh, <laughs> did she get the violin back? No, nobody in the audience took her violin. She right. parked it on the, she parked her car on East Ninth Street with a violin in the back seat. I mean. <laughs> yeah, uh, what, what, what kind of New York City hipster is that? Yeah, you know? right. Yeah. Well, I don't know if she's ever pretended to be a hipster. You know, but uh, <laughs> that's funny. Well, you know, and, and I was just going to say, I mean, the two of you really have a lot in common, just doing music and and journalism. She's the greatest, and you know, living all those years in uh, in Michigan with Fred, and because uh, Michigan's really exactly like Ohio. The weather's the same. The lake is the same. You know, she's a real person, and she uh, and Lenny as well. Uh, it's 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 been cool to see her success see her recognized for you know the artist that she is yeah it's like one one of your own i think horses you know it, it was probably uh the best album of of that era you know and the ramones you know completely different changed everything you know uh, new york was so happening and a lot of the people from well not a lot but you know certain bands from cleveland did relocate to new york um, had you ever had that conversation? I mean, I know that you did at some point, but it was after the fact. We always, we were so stupid that we always thought we could make it out of Cleveland. You know, we were, the Dead Boys, like, Stiv was a little bit older than us. He kind of had a better business sense than we did in those days, and, um... So Dead Boys went to New York. They got signed. We kind of thought that um, on an independent Cleveland-based level that we could we could do that same thing, reach that same kind of thing. You know, it totally didn't work out. We were kids. We were like the hell with New York, you know. We didn't like New York. We didn't like Los Angeles. We didn't like, you know, we liked Detroit. I'm not sure if that's a would be would have been a step up or not. <laughs> kind of a lateral move. Right. We used to we used to play up there all the time. Uh, Destroy all monsters. And Mike Mike Davis 
died too. Yeah. But the monsters were great. We played with them all the time. It was a, it was a weird thing. The uh, the gigs, you mean? Just the whole Cleveland thing, you know, in, at that time. I mean, we all wanted to just get out, destroy it, everything else. You know, now you look back at it and you still hate it. You know, as a scene, it's like, it, I'm going to guess that once it starts, it still kind of keeps on percolating whether you're there or not. And you would still be doing the same thing. And you have been doing the same thing relatively, no matter where you've gone. I write and I, I, write and I play music, you know. That's, that's all I know how to do. My mom says, uh, too lazy to work, too nervous to steal. <laughs> Hi, Mom. Shout out to Clark Range, Tennessee. Pete Lawner was our, uh, uh, he was like our martyr. Mm. He died in, uh, like, summer of 77, right when everything was just starting to break. Right. And he, um, you know, well known as a writer, wrote for Cream, wrote for The Plain Dealer, which is the big paper in Cleveland, was an incredible songwriter, you know. Um, and he's the one that got short shrifted most of all, just because he was so stupid and uh, did way too much drugs, you know. Mm. Can you read the thing Lester Bangs wrote about him? Um, not recently. It's, uh, it should be required reading in every high school English class, I think, because it goes right to the heart of killing yourself isn't really a romantic thing to do, just generations of artists who did it. Well, and a lot of, I mean, a lot of the, quote, killing yourself, especially in an artistic point of view, is is not, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the slow death thing, and people always say, ah, that stuff will kill you, but nobody really sees evidence of that, you know. There's, there's that. I, I was amazed when Mike uh, Davis died a couple of weeks ago that he was 69 years old. I mean, that makes him, of all those guys I knew then who are dead now, one of the most long-lived. Uh, most of them are around 60 or even younger than that. Jimmy Carroll, um, you know, it's, it's like you don't shoot yourself in the head with a pistol, but uh, you keep living lifestyle choices that cut in uh, a great deal. Yeah, that will diminish your, your, your grand total at the end. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned Peter, and I'd like to get to the next set of music. If if I may, my guest is Mike Hudson, and it's uh, such fun. Yes, ain't it? Is there anything that you want to say about this song going in? It's pretty self-explanatory. Okie doke. Well, then, uh, without further ado, let's see if I can say ado correctly. Adieu. We're going to hear a selection from Peter Lofner, which is part of Mike Hudson's set list, and uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes. Stay tuned. This song is called Ain't It Fun, You're Gonna Die Young. It's dedicated to Jane Scott, because she'll stay forever young, forever 16. She won't die young.
just gotta buy a gun Ain't it fun cause you're taking care of number one Ain't it fun when you just, 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 just can't find tongue Just stuck it way too deep in something that really stung Ain't it fun, such fun, such fun, 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 fun Somebody came to me and they spit right in my face But I didn't even feel it, it was such a disgrace I broke the window, smashed my fist right through the glass But I couldn't even feel it, it just happened too fast It was fun, such fun, such fun On the corner, you look so big and fine. I really wanted to go out with you. So when you smiled, I laid my heart on the line.
And we are back. My guest is Mike Hudson of the Pagans. How are you, Mike? I am very well this morning, Diane. And yes, I'm having fun. Good, good. I'm glad. And thank you again for joining us. So that was, uh, let's see. So you programmed the last set, which was starting with, oh, with, with Peter Lochner. We talked about that for a little bit. The song after that was Search and Destroy. You know, all these songs are like what you would hear if you came to my house in 1978. And I guess I just want to know, really, what was that like? I mean, that era, to me, that was just sort of like an enviable place to be and what was going on. And, you know, and there were a lot of bands sort of in the in that Midwestern zone. I mean, did you see the Stooges like all the time and the MC5, you know, like, like really, what was it like living there? I know, I know you talked about being working class and, you know, dropping out of school and stuff, but just in terms of the music scene and... We, we saw them a lot, you know, in the case of, you know, like Ronnie, uh, we toured with uh, when he was with the Monsters, Mike Davis. I guess, I guess now I'm related to uh, uh, James Williamson by marriage or something. Um, oh. Talking to the guys who were around then, I know Scotty from out here, all the guys from the Midwest, they're like, we just did this for our own entertainment. You know what I mean? There was nothing to do. There wasn't like clubs where you could go see cool stuff all the time. There wasn't like a scene. And so it started out just doing it. You would do it in your basement or your garage or whatever. And, uh, mostly just for your own amusement to to stave off the boredom. And then it developed from there, but it was never really like a full-blown kind of thing like you had subsequently. So what were the bills like in general? Like who did you play with the same, the Dead Boys and all those bands? We played with the Dead Boys a lot, but it was really eclectic. It was like now you go see a hardcore band and it's all hardcore bands opening up. You know, but there were bills that we played a bill. Uh, it was the Nerves from out here who wrote Hanging on the Telephone, and they were great, but like a power pop thing. They were headlining, I think. We were on the bill. Devo was on the bill, and Perubu. That was like one show. Yeah, that's that's a great lineup. So like every band that came out was this coming from a totally different place. There wasn't any fashion like there is now, you know. Well, you guys, um, you were inventing this stuff. <laughs> you, know. Yeah, you know, yeah, you would you would pretty much wear what you wore on the street to the to the show. You know what I mean? Uh, you, well, except for Devo, no. What and I have to ask because I am a ridiculous fan. What was Devo like for like their early shows? Were they just like the? I assume that they're like you know the slide rule kids who just had a band, and you still probably they were. Yeah. They absolutely were. That's the people wore to the you know the whole style thing was like sort of how they were in like their real life. Devo was funny because we played with them three or four times in Cleveland and then all of a sudden we had a gig with them and it, they just didn't show up. Really? And, uh, yeah. That and, and sounds it very was like unlikely. Two days later we read that they had been signed by Warner Brothers for some crazy millions of dollars and oh, wow. um, had gone out to L.A. and... Uh, so it was like they just disappeared. It was like they were struck by lightning or something, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's, that's how it was, you know? That two weeks after that, then they were on Saturday Night Live. Oh, that's crazy. But so, so you know, you're telling me about these, these gigs and stuff. It's like, like I can see you, you know, hanging out with the Perubu guys and then the nerves. Like, was hanging out with Devo, like, as odd as being thrown into, like, advanced placement class, kind of? <laughs> they were... They were cool guys. They were cool guys. Okay. They, uh, uh, their best friends were the Rubber City Rebels, who were a punk band from Akron. And mm -hmm. uh, when you were from Cleveland, like Cleveland, uh, un unlike New York or Los Angeles, or you know, it was there were only you could only be so much different from the middle. You know what I mean? So everybody could talk about how bad the Cleveland Indians were that year. Or okay, uh, well, there was something to relate you all together. Yeah, we were stuck in Cleveland. <laughs> and the scene was so small, including all the guys in the bands. It was never more than, I, I, I even hesitate to say, a couple of hundred people, you know? So everybody knew everybody. And, um, you know, bands would come into town. They'd stay at your house. You'd go to their town and stay at their house. It was, it was really uh, basic. And it had to have been a very pure time. There, Like you said, like you... 
go to a hardcore show now when everybody's on the bill doing the same thing. And I guess it just had to have been a really creative period. If um, you were 20 in 1978, you would show up at a club. You know, whether it was in Chicago or wherever it was, and um, you walk in and there's like a lighted disco dance ball hanging from the ceiling, and uh, all these kids are, are dressed like uh, John Travolta, and uh, <laughs> we didn't even, they didn't know what we were, we didn't know what they were, and so, it, you know, the reactions were often not good, you know, or it wasn't <laughs> what they expected, it wasn't what we expected. And then when you moved or have lived in other areas, I mean, and you saw actual quote music scenes did you form an opinion about i don't know if it was if it seemed clickish or what the differences were to kind of just i mean it just sounds like cleveland was like you were sort of like scratching and clawing your way to just get gigs and to kind of hang with your friends it, it, it was like that and but you know when we uh, my brother moved to new york fairly early he had lived there in uh, 77 briefly and he moved for good in 79 played there a few times towards the end and everybody there was really cool to us it didn't seem clickish it seemed like why didn't we just come here before you know oh, okay brian had a problem with his drums when we played nexus kansas city and uh jerry nolan has his drums brought over wow. so that brian would have drums you know nice so it was cool you know the only places that had actual scenes like that were uh New York and Los Angeles yeah, and, and London, cities. England. Yeah, know? you know, but it's funny because it's like, you know, I mean, in hindsight, I'm sure there was probably not a moment where you thought, yeah, there's going to be a book written about this. No, I was always pretty confident. I was always pretty confident. I always thought, you know, if Anais Nin and Henry Miller could get movies made about them, then pretty <laughs> much anybody could. <laughs> Very good. That's why we like you, Mike. Because you're an optimist. <laughs> <You know>. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody wants to know if you have any Tin Huey stories. Tin Huey, it's a, fu it's a funny story, and I, I don't know if Ralph and the boys uh, would agree with this story, but my recollection is that we were playing a show, and they were on the bill, and it was at uh, the Pirates Cove, and our manager had arranged for a record company guy from Warner Brothers to come and see us, and it was supposed to be like a big deal. We were going to get signed and stuff like that. So the guy comes, and we had a bad night. It was one of those, you know, I told you it was 50-50, like whether we were going to be on drunk and fighting. Uh, it was one of the drunk and fighting nights, and she knew he played, and they got signed to Warner Brothers. Oh, ow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I, I know those guys subsequently uh, better than I knew them then. And, uh, you know, they're good guys. They deserve everything they got. And, and what would have happened to you guys if you signed to Warner Brothers? We'd all be dead. Right. Yeah, you said that <laughs> before. Be, right. Unquestionably. Right. <laughs> be like, oh, we got in advance. Yeah. It was that you couldn't put anything in those days. Seriously, you couldn't put anything in a syringe or in a powder form that could be inhaled or a liquid that could be drank or something that could be smoked that we wouldn't do if you just handed it to us. So if we'd have had some crazy money and then, you know, not had to work, there's no doubt in my mind it wouldn't have worked out well. And you sound like you're doing pretty well now. Um, Mike Hudson is the author of five books. The newest one is called uh, Never Trust the World. It's uh, your first novel. From writing lyrics and doing investigative reporting, what's the, uh, what's the difference? When, when you're writing, the cool thing about being in a band is that you go in there and you have your idea, and if you've picked your mates properly, they just add to it. The guitar player comes up with something that you wouldn't have even thought of, or the drummer puts a stop in, or but it's like a collaborative process, uh, which is why I never understand. You know, like even the Rolling Stones. I mean, they put every song Jagger Richards. I mean, I'm sure Keith and Nick didn't write Charlie's drum parts. I'm sure Charlie came up with those on his own. You know, so to me, he should get writing credit too. Sure. You know, that, with the pagans, we always just, the writing credits were always just the pagans. But when you write, especially when you write fiction, when you're, when you're doing a uh, work of imagination, then it's, you're just by yourself. It's just in your head, and you, you have the machine in front of you, and um, it's 
just what comes out. One man band. So when you're doing things like more like on a case, let's say, because you've been a newspaper writer for a long time, yeah. is, is that more of like a manipulation or, or sort of taking facts and then trying to make something cohesive? I mean, what's that experience like? You try and find out what, what the truth is mm. in, any, in any given situation. And to do that, you have to do a lot of just basic kind of research, but then also talk to lots of people. And um, it helps to be, you know, somewhat gregarious. And uh, like, doing the, like you're doing this interview, you know what I mean? It's, uh, it's that, and, and you have a tape recorder going, and you're taking notes. Uh, when you get done with all that, then you have a pile of stuff, and then figuring out what was important, what was... Uh, um, truth and what might have been somebody trying to um, advance their own agenda. Yeah, everybody has their own truth. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, you are a master at your craft on, on either end. That's... You say the nicest things, Diane. <laughs> That's why you said yes to coming on the show. <laughs> Um, (laughs) (laughs) now uh, you know somebody asked they wanted to know because in the beginning of the Loeffner cut he says that the song goes out to Jane Scott right Um, Jane was great yeah she just passed away last year I think yeah yeah a lot of people no matter what town we went to on the tour last year uh, people wanted to hear Jane Scott's stories so can you tell us a Jane Scott story she was kind of like your daddy old aunt even when I first met her which was in the mid 70s she was old then you know I mean she was in her 50s at least she was she was 90 something last last year when she passed away and she'd come to these shows and she would wear earplugs she would take your picture and she would always ask what high school you went to Oh, that's cute. And that would always be like a thing in her article, you know, uh, what high school you went to. And mm. um, But she just um, promoted the hell out of the weirdest kinds of music. A lot of people give Cleveland credit for breaking people like Bruce Springsteen or Patti Smith. It really had a lot to do with, with Jane and, and what she wrote. In the pantheon of, of, of rock journalists, I think almost any guy from Cleveland would uh, put her very near the top. I mean, I've heard the, those kinds of praises for her over and over yeah. again. Obviously very, uh, very important for that scene. I, I, we were playing one night and, you know, the pagans were loud. I mean, we were all, all about Marshall, you know, stacks, and, uh, and I noticed her sleeping. <laughs> Out in the audience, she had a table, and she was she was not now. Oh, it was past her bedtime. I guess she, uh, but she wanted to support. That's really awesome. Well, she did. She did. She would write every week, and I mean, here's a woman who interviewed the Beatles on their first tour, knew Elvis. Uh, uh, wow. You know, so she was like a link to all that, and you were just some kid from uh, the East Side, and and then now she's talking to you. She, she was great. And you said the East Side, and I know that they're. Um I've read about, and there was a question about the um, the fire on the um, the river that I guess sort of separated the the sides of the city. Cuyahoga, yeah, the uh, the river goes right down the middle of downtown, and there's the east side and the west side, and there's very culturally and everything else big differences between the east side and the west side. But in about '75, I think it uh, it was so polluted, it was the most polluted river in the United States. It just burst into flames spontaneously. They said it was because um, train had gone over a bridge and the sparks from the, where the wheels are on a track dropped down onto the surface of the water which was thick with um, oil and paint and uh, wow. everything else they dumped into it. And it just burst into flames and it burnt down a couple of bridges. So that was, you know, that was the other thing about being from Cleveland, you know. It was like the Indians every year were in last place. A river caught on fire. It was front page news. You know, we had blizzards every winter that just shut the city down. Um, Johnny Carson, when on the Johnny Carson show, he used to... Uh, he had these contests, and, and the uh, if you lost the contest, your prize was a vacation to Cleveland. So it was kind of like a <laughs> national joke, you know. Right. We, the mayor of the the mayor of the town before Dennis Kucinich, he had so much hairspray in his hair. One day, he went to a an industrial site to do a photo op. They were welding, and a spark from the welding went in his hair, and he had so much hairspray in that his his head, his head just burst into flames. <laughs> His wife, Mrs. Perk, 
she was invited to uh, by Betty Ford to the White House, uh, like they were having a dinner for all the Republican big city mayors' wives. And she said she couldn't go because it was her bowling night. Wow! So that made national news. You know, it was just yep. story after story like that, that oh, in funny. the national press. You know, and so Cleveland was like it was like a joke at that. Yeah, I guess it still is. That's funny. <laughs> Sorry, can't come out to the White House. <laughs> but we heard um, sure. ex offender from Blondie. Blondie was was just great. They were around all the time. I interviewed them. I was working at a paper in Cleveland then, and I interviewed them. Uh, they were on tour. Debbie wasn't in a good mood. It, it'd be another six months or a year before I started going on tour, and I wasn't in a good mood either. What, what do you mean? <laughs> I was, uh, I went up and her and Chris had a room and then like Clem and Jimmy and uh, Gary were in another room. They started playing me the board tape from the show the night before that we that I had gone to. And she comes in and she's wearing like a terry cloth robe like with a, a, a towel around her head and mm-hmm. um, goes over to the tape recorder and takes the tape out and she screams, I told you not to play that for that. And so my immediate you know, thought was, wow, she's kind of a bitch. And, um, as I said, after I went out on tour myself, I, I knew that it, it doesn't really take much to set you off. I'm sure you've had many of those towel-on-your-head moments as well. Absolutely. <laughs> no, they were a great band and uh, still are. Yeah, they've actually really kind of, I think that they've done well to sort of, quote, keep up with the times. Mm-hmm. Is there anything uh, anything new that you listen to? Um, no. Okay. I don't even have anything in my house. Other than the computers, and I can play YouTube, but I don't have speakers on my computers. Other than that, I don't even have anything in my house to play music on. Okay. I had to ask, and I had the feeling that you probably were not. I know. Everybody asked. Uh, yeah, know, no, and that, that is one of the questions from the listeners. Like, what do you listen to now? And, you know, what new bands do you like that is you know, when i'm driving or something i have a you know, obviously have a cd player in my car and, and i listen to the stuff i always listen to uh you know rolling stones and uh frank sinatra and elvis and um pretty much the stuff i always listen to so i want to get back into the music the mc5 is the next the next track on your list what would you like to say about they were um like like the stooges from detroit uh they were our brothers um god bless mike davis and um they loved america on this great chuck berry song so my guest is mike hudson uh, he's guest djing for a little while longer and here is some mc5 please stay tuned <laughs> Some live dead boys there. Hey. Mike, are you there? Hey. Awesome. I am here. Awesome. Detention Home, which is a song that's not on any of the dead boys' uh, studio records. It's, it's, it's a great tone, and it's uh, reflective of our uh, misspent youth. And, uh, and, yeah, so the last time I saw you, you were doing your book tour with, uh, with Cheetah, obviously right. of the dead boys also. Any book tours planned? Uh, there's there's no tour planned. I'm doing a um, spoken word record with this uh, group. They're on a Belgian label, Neuropa. They're called Roses Never Fade, mm-hmm. and they sent me some tracks, and I dug them, and so I'm writing some stuff now to do over it. I'm going to record that out here. I'm working on a new novel, and I'm uh, writing a book about Japanese swords. 
Really? Mm-hmm. Are you a collector? I am. I am. I don't know anything about Japanese swords, but I'll have to talk to you about that because I do collect certain blades myself. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. I have other blades that aren't Japanese. They're Italian. Uh, so um, somebody wants to know, why are the dead boys not held in the same regard as the Stooges? I don't know if you can answer that. I think it's kind of because the Stooges were, you know, obviously first. I mean, they way predated. It's like the Velvet Underground, right? The Dead Boys, I don't think, ever got the respect uh, that they should have, and I think it was uh, largely due to bad management, bad PR when they were actually around. In a certain in a certain sense, like the Pagans, uh, people focused on the drugs they were doing and uh, nonsense they were involved in rather than uh, listening to the records, because those records absolutely hold up. Those are records that, that you still go to and they're, they're legendary. Well, what's your thought on the, the impact that the Pagans made? I mean, you guys were a band for sort of a short period of time, but the impact was larger. Is there, were you surprised that, um, at how that sort of turned out? Again, I wasn't surprised. I always knew we were great, but I hate it when, you know, kids are drinking and doing drugs and stuff like that and say it's because they dug the Pagans so much. I'm not responsible for what kids choose to do in their lives, then uh, I don't like getting blamed for it, so... Well, that's... Um, that would be a pretty lame excuse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the guy in the pagan You student. always look for any excuse, though, when you're doing that stuff, you know? It's, uh... Oh, well, it's never uh, your... It's never your fault. It, you know? It's never uh, your fault, yeah. It's never your choice. Oh, I did it because somebody else had me do it. <laughs> Right, exactly, exactly, you know. Good parts and it has bad parts. You know, I had a lot of fun, and uh, it was a good time in my life. It's brought me good things over the years, and uh, I'm glad I did it. Well, we're all glad you did it, too. Were were there any um, musicians in the scene that you think were really overlooked? And, of course, overlooked is a weird word because Cleveland, in I mean, the scene has now had some attention. Um, so in in light of all that of that attention, um, is there anything that the historians have missed? There, there was one guy, his name was Bernie Jolson, and he had a band called Bernie and the Invisibles, and he was very uh, Jonathan Richmond, and he was great, but he was a neurotic kid. He did some recordings, but I don't, they've never been released. I put out a couple of live tracks by him when I was running Terminal Records because he was as good as anybody who was around. Yeah, I, I certainly don't know the name. And, you know, we didn't even touch on, we're just about out of time, we didn't even touch on your whole, you know, sort of putting together a book to put out and all that, but you you did a lot of uh, publishing in music and in um, the written word. Yeah. Well, there was hardly anything else to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I love your down-pat answers, you know. It's just kind of like... Um, so Mike Hudson has a page on Amazon and uh, has five books that are out. There's uh, the latest one is Never Trust the World. The uh, the most uh, music oriented one is Diary of a Punk. Then there's Mob Boss, Niagara Falls Confidential, and Jetsam. I would certainly recommend all of them. Um, is there anywhere else that people can find you that you uh, want to be I found? Hope, I hope not. Okay. Well, is there anything else that you want listeners to know? That uh, whenever I'm in New York City, I listen to WFMU (laughs) 91.1 on my FM dial. Diane Kamikaze Ferris rules the effing world. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. Mike, I just, I really want to thank you. I just want to thank you for making the time to do this. And I know you're on the West Coast, so 10 a.m. was certainly a, would be a tall order for me. And uh, and just for your contribution, just in in terms of the bands that you were in and your writing, and Mike's writing is really really unbelievable, and 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 uh, just so you know in your face, like like real visceral and super. You know, thanks for keeping all of us thinking and keeping yourself motivated to do that, so that so that we get to read, you know, real books. Like in this world of like where you press a button and something comes up to entertain you, it's really great to read real good books um, from somebody who's so accomplished. Thanks a lot, Diane. I really appreciate it. You know that. and uh, I do. I'll, and thanks for coming on the show. Talk to you in a little bit. And that wraps it up for today's podcast. Thank you to Lita Martinez for editing the podcast and to Liz Berg for all the other background work. 
We are WFMU.